to the Inclusion Solution Live, the Winters Groups podcast for all things diversity, equity, and inclusion. I am your host, Brittany J. Harris, Vice President of Learning and Innovation, and I am excited to leverage this medium as yet another opportunity to facilitate dialogue, shift perspectives, and empower action in service of equity, justice, and inclusion. June 5th, 2020. Quiet time allows for many thoughts and ideas, but you never know what's brilliance and what's lunacy. When you don't have a proper sounding board, prison seems to be an environment where one is always teetering on a tightrope that has a rebirth, realization, rejuvenation, and ultimate enlightenment on one side and divine insanity on the other. As I read the Anthony Ray Hinton story, I was intrigued by his ability to befriend and accept a reformed Klan member and murderer. Who loves a murderer? Who loves a sinner? Who decides? What act of deviance is greater than the next? Who is the judge? Is offering comfort a gesture of acceptance of the person and additionally the act? When do the lines get blurred? After having an extensive conversation with a Sereno gang member who has mastered one-step microwave meals, complete with breading and curry sauce, I realized that I could be hungry three to five days out of the week and hold her accountable for the influx of drugs in poor communities, or accept that she was, at her core, a woman, a sister, and a survivor who was operating as best she could in an environment that socialized you to be predator or prey and the wrong choice could lead to your death. I chose to share a meal with her at least two days a week, listen with my mouth closed and my mind open. I mean, ain't she a woman? Mm. I am uh, so appreciative, um, appreciative and excited about the conversation um, that we are going to have today. Um, a conversation, you know, we kind of termed it a conversation among sisters. And so I am elated to be joined with um, Claudia and Shavara on today um, to have what we believe, I believe, is a very necessary conversation. You know, more formally, we've been uh, having a lot of conversations in our work around this idea of mapping the intersection, um, mapping the intersection of what we've considered diversity and inclusion work with social justice work. Um, and these conversations really call for organizations and leaders to no longer see themselves within or existing within a vacuum or within the like proverbial walls, now virtual walls of the organization. This conversation um, or these conversations are about moving beyond the boardroom, uh, expanding our conversations to include equity, justice and in our roles 
in a much broader social change ecosystem, which means, right, centering racial equity, racial justice, and not just our conversations, but our strategy and our work. And so in this moment in time, right, this current movement is really calling for what, you know, many would consider a total overhaul of our systems, more specifically, our criminal justice system, as we've come to know it. You know, there have been calls to defund the police, um, abolish the prison system, uh, what has evolved into a form of modern day slavery, um, and investing in, right, restorative forms of justice centered on community, humanity, you know, proactively removing the barriers that continue to exist and be perpetuated as the norm. Um, and as much as these conversations are, you know, top of mind today, I would venture to say that a lot of the dialogue around criminal justice, more specifically, or the school to prison pipeline or the prison industrial complex, oftentimes is centered around the experiences of Black men. Mm -hmm. um, and sure that's valid. We also know that Black women, Black girls, Black mothers are also disproportionately impacted by these very same systems. We don't talk about that as much. And so um, it is certainly our belief, my belief, that we can't begin to fully understand, much less solve for these complex issues if we're not amplifying the voices, the perspectives of those most impacted by them right, um, which is what this conversation is about, amplifying, um, amplifying experience, amplifying the humanity, certainly amplifying um, the journey of Claudia, Claudia Shivers. And so I'm super excited for this discussion today and all the more grateful that Shavara connected us um, so that we could align today and uh, be part of the impact we're seeking to see. That's my intro, y'all. That is my intro. Um, I'm going to stop because what the people are here to hear, um, who we are here to hear from and amplify, certainly it's not myself, but none other than um, Claudia. And so, you know, at the top of our learning experiences, we sometimes will offer for ourselves an I am statement, honoring the complexities and nuances of who we are and how we show up in this conversation. And so I'm wondering, um, Claudia, if you wouldn't mind just kind of kicking off and sharing a little bit more about yourself. Um, and who you are, perhaps even framing it in the context of I am. Okay, all right. So I did write a little bit just because, you know, I could come up with an infinite number of things that I am, right? <laughs> so I'll just read this and then add a little bit of flavor to it while I'm reading it, right? So I am from the rich, the rich soil of the Congo and the divine spiritual tribes of Nigeria. I am from Dudley's hair grease and jerry curls. We didn't mm -hmm. want the jerry curls, y'all, but my mama made us get them. 
have from 219 Westside Drive in Lexington, North Carolina, or as we call it, the barbecue capital of the world. I'm from the plantations of Virginia by way of an involuntary, all expense paid cruise ship from the African shores. Our ticket was punched around 1725. I am filled with purpose and called with lead, to lead. My nostrils are still filled with the smell of the warm living jungles from my birthplace. I am Opepe or African peach, which is a wood that grows in, in Nigeria. I ignite in 15 seconds, burn for 65 and have an 82 second afterglow. I am spades parties at Miss Minnie's house. Sardines, hey, and pork and beans, right? So, uh, and I am, you must be a, uh, you must be a clot filter with your wide nose, right? From Walter and Queen Esther Shivers, I am from great intelligence and equally quick wit. I am from can't is not a word and your dark skin is so beautiful, it shows how strong you are. I am from Jehovah's Witnesses and from First Baptist Church. I'm from mm -hmm. Macon, Georgia, Trenton, New Jersey, and the, and the Southern Bantu people. From Chitlins, Pig Feet, South Meat, and Collard Greens. From Saffronia Rose, who killed her first husband with a hat pin because she suspected him of infidelity. Saffronia, who would not open her door to even let her children in after sundown just to keep the evil spirits out. Mm. From Liza Knotts, don't split the pole or let anybody sweep your feet because it's all bad luck. At granddaddy's house are all the family pictures from yesterday and back in 1910. Granddaddy's house is the family museum, the keeper of reminders of the rich heritage from which I grew. Mm. Thank you for that. Mm. Thank you, Claudia. One thing that I'm thinking um, might be helpful is if before we even get into our questions and our discussion here, you know, Shavar, you read, you read that passage. Um, I wonder if you could give some folks, perhaps if they haven't made the connection yet, um, just a little bit of context about what you read there, especially after Claudia has um, shared a little bit more, or following Claudia sharing a little bit more about herself, where she's from. Sure, thank you for that, Brittany. Um, and I am just so honored to be in this sister space with both of you. What I was reading earlier is a letter that Claudia sent me. She was um, imprisoned for about 10 months this past year. and when she first went away to camp, I encouraged her to write, to write down everything, everything she thought, everything she saw, everything she dreamed. And so she started writing me these really beautiful, powerful letters, um, oftentimes fleeting thoughts, sometimes about the women who were there with her, um, and sometimes about what she missed from home. Yeah. I thought that might be good um, context as we engage in this conversation. Um, certainly was intentional about considering this a conversation among sisters where we can model vulnerability and certainly um, amplify, you know, our experiences. Um, and Claudia's experience here. One that we don't really talk about, even in the context of our equity and inclusion work. 
Um, and so Claudia, um, I think it would certainly be a value to our listeners just to hear from you. Um, just a little bit more about your experience um, at camp. When I think about uh, the, our current climate, what, what is or what was and still is a global pandemic um, um, on the outside dealing with COVID-19 and certainly can imagine there being implications even while you were there. And so if you could just share a little bit more about your experience at camp. Um, and what the impact has been has been on you. So I really like that you guys, you ladies keep saying camp I, because I am intentional when I say that because there is a difference in the different institutions and the different different levels of security. And we often say this is really a camp because the the activities that we did most often was crocheting and knitting, right? So anything you need that you don't have, somebody can crochet you one or, you know, <laughs> So anything, right? Um, but as far as it relates to the pandemic, for one thing, because it's a camp, there there are no locked doors, there are no real walls. So the the space that you inhabit is pretty much like if you were in a gym, right? Mm. So there were eight different units, four per building, and so I was in A one unit A one. So everybody's on one floor in bunk beds and you're separated by a partition, okay? But there's no, there, it doesn't go to the wall, it only goes up to maybe five feet. So at the time that the pandemic hit, we because I was at a working camp, everybody used to work, but then we had to stop working because we had to go on lockdown, right? But there's no way to really be quarantined if you don't have a, if you don't have a wall and you don't have doors, right? Mm. And you're interacting with everybody all day, but then if, if you, once you're on lockdown, you cannot go back to work, right? So now you're in a space with 130 other women and somebody's mm. telling you that there's something that's deadly and highly infectious and that black people are gonna get it first and they are gonna die first, right? And also typically white women are typically the ones who have their their crimes were considered less violent right so if anybody qualifies to go home early because of the pandemic it would be them but they're not the most vulnerable people in that community right so then you start to you start to see division right because now the white people uh, <laughs> there's a lady named linda right so she always she started writing letters all the time and we always laughed because we said when she was writing the letters they they must have said i am a white woman right <laughs> because she wrote to jay-z she wrote to van jones she wrote to chance the rapper she got one letter that was returned to her because of it didn't have a valid address from from young jeezy okay so, and we were asking her, like, do you even know who these people are? And she said, who no. Who these letters? I'm like, what's up? What's up? <laughs> <laughs> I can't be here because I'm going to die here. I have to go gotcha, home. Gotcha, gotcha. Gotcha. That, that's pretty much what it said. And every day, her and her bunkie would get up and they would go watch CNN mm -hmm. all day long, right? Just to see the death count because CNN always mm -hmm. had the number, the more, you know, the number of deaths like Fox News, everybody, they talk about other things, but CNN was showing the numbers. And every time those numbers went up, they were more excited. They were more encouraged, right? Mm -hmm. Because the more deadly it is, the more likely you're going to go home, right? Wow. 
but because most of the African-American women were considered like a higher risk of recidivism, or they may have had what they called a violent crime. So if you are, or if you're there for a bank robbery, but you just signed a note, you know, you wrote a note, give me the money, right? It's still categorized as a violent crime. So now you're, you don't even qualify to be considered to go home. So now Linda is going to go home. So she's waiting to see who's dying. And then most of the people who are dying, you know, the 80% in New York are African-American people, right? Because of pre-existing health conditions or comorbidities. So now how that's internalized is Linda's happy because all the black people are dying, right? Mm. So then everybody started getting in little groups. They became really segregated. And because there's no privacy, you can hear everybody talking. And one time there was even a group of people that started fighting black people against white people just because the tension was so high. So you're now excited about death, right? And now people that didn't consider themselves to be racist are now separated by race. Mm-hmm. And you're just hoping for some opportunity. You're just so desperate for an opportunity to get home because at the same time, you don't have the same access to the phones or emails, that kind of thing, because you're on lockdown, then you can't check on your family. So you see a lot of people go to the phone, a lot of black and brown people go to the phone and come back because somebody in their family has been infected. Mm -hmm. Um, One young lady, her children, she left them with her aunt who had diabetes and she's had both legs amputated since she's been incarcerated. So now she's calling her aunt who has diabetes with no legs and she's worried about her aunt and the children, but Linda gets to go home before her because Mm -hmm. she dated a drug dealer. She didn't sell drugs, she dated a drug dealer, but she didn't tell on her when she got arrested. So now she has to serve seven years, right? So it it just became extremely tense and the pandemic sort of made it worse. You know, Claudia, it's interesting because when um, the nation went into, um, well, when we first received the order from from administration in DC that our nation um, was going to have to quarantine, a lot of the language that you would hear on social media Mm -hmm. were people complaining that they were in lockdown. And, you know, to the point you just made, people in in prison don't have the freedom to socially distance themselves and are most at risk. And thinking about the the crisis of humanity that you just talked about, that that was a crisis of humanity, right? You've got people celebrating death who ordinarily wouldn't be celebrating death, but that is the only way that they saw a light at the end of a tunnel that they could get home, home to their their family. So I'm curious, um, just from your perspective, and language is important. Brittany and I talk about this all the time in our work. We we challenge organizations to remember that language is political. It is powerful, like June Jordan told us. So this idea that people were interchangeably using lockdown and quarantine, just curious about how that lands on you. Um, having oh. So I thought about that earlier. I thought about that before, since I've been home, right? Because people will say, oh, you you just got home. Oh, okay, girl, we've been, it's just like we've been in prison too, right? And what I can relate that to is when my mom passed away, when people would say, I understand how you feel and you knew that they didn't, if they still had their mom, but the only way for them to understand is for them to go through it. 
And so you don't want them to go through it to understand, but you know that they don't understand just by the, 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 the lack of levity that they give to the, to the statement, because being imprisoned, whether it's a camp or any, um, or it's a maximum security facility means that you no longer have any choices, right? So whether you live or die no longer is your decision. It is up to someone else. You know, somebody can come in, the warden can come in at any time and say, today we decided you can't watch television. Prime example with the George Floyd murder, right? So they, they didn't want us to get upset or start rioting. Mm -hmm. So they turned off all the televisions. Wow. So now we we're out isolated from all civilization and we don't even have television to see what's going on or to relieve the tension of our situation because there's nothing else to do. There's no access to working out because you're on lockdown. So now you have to sit with people and don't, you have no idea what's going on. You know, since I've been home, I can look out the window. I can walk on the front porch. You know, I can just walk around. I can talk to whoever I want to. You have choice, you have options. And, and once your choices are taken away from you, it changes exactly who you are. There's no way, it's no, it's no way to be the same person without a choice, right? Because then you're just fighting for anything that you can hold on to. So for somebody to say, it's just like we're in prison. Well, you still have the option uh -huh. to walk out. So you can disobey the rule with not really any consequence. You can go to Walmart mm -hmm. and, and you don't have to wear your mask and Walmart's just going to say, well, you can't come in and then you go to Target. But if we walked out to get our lunch and we didn't have on our mask, then you get an incident report, right? The incident report, we call them shots. I don't know why they call it that, but once you get an incident report, you no longer qualify to go home early based on the fact that there's a pandemic because you simply mm -hmm. forgot to put a mask on, right? So you ask, there, there are extreme consequences to the smallest choices that you do make. And then you see a lot of time people fighting for just to make any choice, any decision in their own lives, but just to sit in your own house, you know, there's, every single person at that camp, every every single one of the 865 people would have given almost anything to sit at home and, and pretend that they couldn't go outside as opposed mm -hmm. to not really be able to go outside, you know? Yeah, thank you for that. You know, Claudia, I was thinking about um, impact on family. Um, when I was a little girl, my stepfather was a, um, he had been a civil rights activist and in the midst of that, um, had a horrible addiction to cocaine and heroin and spent some time at a penal farm. And my little sister and I, we would push our little bodies flat on the floor of the car when we were driving out, riding out to the penal farm because we were convinced that people, everybody would know. Like there was a sign on the car that said bound for the big house. Yeah. I, I don't know why I thought people <laughs> knew, but I, I was convinced that everybody knew where we were going. And, you know, the dehumanization of that experience, um, that was back in the in the '80s when they were still like cutting through cakes and checking your clothes, and it was really humiliating. Um, and once we walked through what for me felt like a portal of the entryway, there are these beautiful grounds with a lake and ducks and seesaws, and families were loving each other, and there was all this talent. Um, it was a men's prison, a penal farm, but there were artists and woodworkers. I remember, though, 
um, the immense shame that I felt and the connection. I felt that I too was somehow imprisoned because my stepfather, who I loved very much, was, was imprisoned. And at the same time, when I would be there visiting him, I felt this incredible sense of pride because he would walk us around and show us off. And he also was clean when he was in prison. So I actually liked visiting him in prison versus him terrorizing us at our home. And so I'm just curious, you have children, um, you have a daughter who had to, to stay away, had to go away um, while you were away for safety and so that she could continue school. And so I'd, I'd love to hear just some of your reflections about the impact on, on your family in particular, and then what that impact meant to you, how that landed on you. So I like that you said dehumanization, right? Mm. So I have a saying that grew out of my camp experience. Dehumanization happens one small act of indifference at a time, right? So the impact- Can you repeat that, Claudia? Can you, re can you repeat that? Dehumanization happens one small act of indifference at a time, mm. right? So my children, I have fought, I've been un, an unwed mom for several years. So, well, for 28 years, right? And mostly by choice, because I always put the kids first. I have fought every day that I have been a mom to make sure that they had an identity in, in, the, in the world, right? So when they go to school, I make sure everybody knows that we're all present. We're, an, we're a unit. So what being away from the family does and them not having access to you, it breaks up the unit and it, it takes away the security that they had, right? Mm -hmm. So you have confident children, right? I have a son who was a linguist in the Navy. He translates Arabic, right? He was there. He, was, he served six years. He um, got out in September of 2019. He's extremely confident. Everybody loved him. They wanted him to stay in, but he did not want to because he needed to reconnect with at least his sisters, mm -hmm. right? He's been away from all of us since he graduated from high school. So he graduated in July. He left in August, right? But just the fact that the option to visit was no longer there made him come back to reconnect with his sisters. I have two, my two oldest daughters, they had children before I left and I was at the hospital for both of the, 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 um, the births. And then each one of them had another child while I was gone and they were petrified while they were at the hospital without their mom because they have, they have great relationships with the rest of the family and their dads. However, it's not the same when you've grown up as a unit. My daughter who went out to, she went out to Vegas. She was with very close friends she was completely safe and she hated every second of it, right? She had access to, you know, Rick Ross, the um, young lady she was living with, you know, would text and say, ha ha, KD is so funny. And she's talking about Kevin Durant. So any kid's dream, but she was like, I just want to come home because mm. my mom is not there, but I need somebody, right? Who can be there? So I could hear they were being positive and encouraging because that's what I taught them. And they wanted to keep me encouraged, but I could hear the fear in their, in, in their words, right? Because what they always knew to be true was no longer true, right? Mom is always gonna be here. And so then 
when someone takes it away and you have no control of it because if it were up to them they would have said we'll all just go right and then you wouldn't have felt like you were in prison at all but because they did not have that option they i could hear the fear in their voices no matter what their words say so i always say that words are the sounds that your heart makes right so if you have fear in your heart then that's what's going to come out of your mouth so when they're talking to me and i can hear them being encouraging but you can hear just small words that you know means that they need you to be there just so you can give them a hug because not having a hug from your mom in 10 months is bad but in five years is even worse right so um thankfully i wasn't gone so long that it got worse but you have families that easily their daughter is now you know being promiscuous because who's gonna supervise her right um you have sons that are now selling drugs because who's going to supervise them right so my children did what they knew to do you know i always we used to say if when we go to the mall if we get split up everybody meet back here right mm -hmm. so meet back at the home base right and so they knew to meet back at home when i got here everybody was here but that's because they we, we got split up and you could tell that there was the fear. So just the fear and the insecurity that now we're all gonna just go to family counseling together. Yeah, thank you for that. You, you were talking about the family as a unit and I'm thinking, you know, family is village too. So while you were away and imprisoned at camp, who was your village? <laughs> what, did it, what did it, you know, is there something that's different and unique about building a village um, in an incarcerated state that um, is different than the way that, you know, you build sisterhood mm -hmm. in those spaces? There's definitely a difference, right? And I kind of laugh just because, you know, just I'm having thoughts while you're asking the question. Well, first of all, your outside village, which is very important because you always need to remember why you're doing what you're doing. So in prison, it's easy to forget who you are and go with what the majority is doing, right? So you need people on the outside to remind you who you are, to remind you why you're making good choices. So people sending you books, you know, I know I've always heard people say, you know, you got to send them some money because they're in prison, but it's really nothing to buy. It's not like you at the mall, right? So, but books keep you, they allow you to leave where you are right? So that's very important. So I had one friend who all she did was send me books. That's all she did. She's a principal. She knows the importance of books. My siblings were always, they always answered the phone. It didn't matter what they were doing or where they were. They always answered the phone, right? Um, and then just somebody being on the receiving end of a letter, which is why Shavara is such a wonderful spirit in the, in the universe, because <laughs> I just need to send a message out. I might not be able to come tell you myself, but I just need to send the message out, right? So I just need to get these words outside of this wall. And then on the inside of the wall, so, you know, I always made friends like at, at one point in life, cause they were fun. Then, then at another point, because they helped my career development. But in at camp, your friends, your best friends are the ones who, know the most how to navigate prison right mm -hmm. which usually means it look questionable on the outside right 
So, you know, you say, oh my God, you know, it's a pandemic, they're looting and you sitting on your bed like, oh, this is terrible. And then you're, and then somebody else walks in, they say, oh my God, you never believe what my family got when they went looting. And you're like, oh, okay. Okay. That's real. And so, I'm, you know, and, 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 one thing is that they were all very accepting, right? So they meet you where you are and they accept you. So all those memes that you read on Facebook about acceptance, that's what they do in prison because they're so used to it. You know, their mind is open to whatever the possibilities are and they're survivors. So they're fine. They just need to know who you are. So they always said, you know, that we had a running joke because they gave us a rate of how, how likely we were to recidivate, right? So my rate of recidivism is minimum, which is zero, never, ever going back. So they would say, uh, Claudia, what you doing over there with your minimum self, right? Because they were mediums and highs, right? But if you've never been to prison, you know, you go in and you like, gratitude is attitude, right? And then somebody's going to eat you up. So you have to learn to be with people who can teach you how to take care of yourself, but also not appear too mean at the same time because you cannot you can't offend too many people because you know you have to protect yourself and you have to learn to protect yourself by your actions right because anything you do to get in trouble is going to keep you there longer mm -hmm. so you have to learn to have a presence of i'm not i'm not for that you know we're not doing you know this is just what we're not doing right and so you hang around the people who nobody is going to try, right? So you hanging around a medium and a high because you know if somebody try you, you might say, well, it's okay, you know, you you probably needed a hug today, you know, that kind of thing. But you end up, you know, you might end up in a fight. They always say, because I communicate, right? I'm an over-communicator. And so they would say, Claudia, you so messy. And I won the Messy Bestie Award because we had a little talent show and I won the award because I communicated so much, but I was like, guys, all these problems could be solved if we just talk, but see in a criminal community, mm -hmm. we're not talking, right? Silence is golden, right? So, <laughs> so <laughs> I just had to hang out with the people who were the most experienced. And it, I mean, to me, it made me a better person because you learn the value in everybody. Be because before my camp experience, if I'd have met any of those people, I would have never talked to him. I would have never, I would have been preaching from the mountaintops about how bad mass incarceration is, but I would have never talked to somebody who had been incarcerated in the masses, right? Mm -hmm. So so now I've learned, I've learned who they are and they've learned who I am. And so now they can talk through me, right? Because they are not gonna go in a boardroom and just sit down on the first try and have a great conversation, but they can talk to me and then I can deliver the message, right? And again, why I love Shavara so much, because I can deliver the message to Shavara and she's gonna get it to the right person, right? Mm -hmm. So now, so now where we were at the grassroots, you know, we got okay. grass and we got roots down here, and then we hand it off to Shavara, and then she, you know, she Usain bought with it, you know? So it it my village it continues to grow, but now I've learned how important the village is, right? So. Power in the collective. I've been like taking notes and theming over here um, over the some of the stuff that um, 
we've discussed so far. And so one of the things that um, I heard and I'm just thinking about is how even sort of hierarchy, you know, persists, right, in different systems, which was really evident in how you shared your experience, the racial dynamics, particularly, you know, the class dynamics even, you know, in the context of this global pandemic. Um, and I thought about um, Shavar's follow-up to that around how people on the outside have perceived, you know, COVID, lockdown, and even this, uh, there was a phrase going around how COVID is the, the greatest equalizer or something to that effect. This global pandemic has been the equalizer. Um, where our experience is even what you have shared thus far um, challenges that and it hasn't been the equalizer because we still experience it um, even in the context of your camp very differently based on how we're situated in this hierarchy. Um, and I just think about you know, the politics of you needing to navigate, and maybe politics isn't the word, but just needing to adapt um, how you had, you know, for survival within the camp, but also in anticipation and hope for, you know, leaving the camp. But just kind of like what all of that entailed. Um, and then it got me to thinking, because my mind has just been racing over here as I process. Um, something you mentioned about uh, the impact on your family. And so I think about how oftentimes when we have these conversations, um, we're not prioritizing humanity and people. We're thinking about numbers without equal attention to the generational impact, right? And that's kind of where we get into systems. When we think about generational impact, when we think about small indifference, how incremental indifference. I love what you said earlier. Dehumanization happens one small indifference at a time. Inequity, folks listen, folks listening, inequity, isms, um, structures that oppress happen in incremental forms of indifference right. in action, right? Um, and so I kind of want to talk about this systemic, right? I want to use that framing as a way to transition into, you know, the role of systems, um, specifically in the context of, you know, the, 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 the transition back home. Um, there's an African proverb that I think is relevant to this conversation, and it's not verbatim, but it talks about, you know, you teach a man, you know, you teach a person, but you teach a woman, and you are essentially educating an entire generation, right. which is particularly important in the context of this discussion, because when we talk about Black women being disproportionately impacted by the flaws of our criminal justice system, we're talking about the impact on families, generations to come, Black women being primary, you mentioned it, breadwinners, and now this having a socioeconomic, you know, impact. Uh, and so, you know, Brittany, I just said a lot. I'm going to throw that out there, just get y'all's reactions to that, right? Just the you system. know, Brittany, I was thinking, um, <clears throat> You know, over the past quarter century, there's been a profound change in the involvement mm -hmm. of women within our prison industrial complex, our criminal justice system. I mean, between 1980 and 2017, the number of incarcerated women increased mm -hmm. by more than 750%. Wow. And although there are more men in prison than women, the rate of growth for female imprisonment has been twice as high. 
since 1980. I mean, there are 1.3 million women under the supervision of the criminal justice system. And, you know, one of the things I was thinking about, Claudia, we had a conversation the other day and you were talking about some of the post-conviction barriers to re-entry that, that uniquely impact and affect, affect women. So I'd love to hear um, your, your thoughts around um, one, not just the high rate of incarceration, but disproportionately how women are impacted and to the point that Brittany made that women and the point that you made, women take care of entire communities. And so if you are, for example, providing support, financial support, economic support to women, they aren't just gonna take care of themselves. They are building, building community. And when we think about women in prison who are, who are mothers, more than 60% of women in state prisons have a child wow. at the age of 18, right? Right. So, yeah. so I like that you have the numbers to go with it, right? But so, so when we, so when we take, when we take the numbers and turn it into people, right? So that's what you do from, from, from the, the bridge between grassroots and corporate, right? Is turning the numbers into people, right? Mm -hmm. So 750 times is a lot, but also there were already, cause you said Shavara, there are more men incarcerated than women. So those fathers weren't in the families. And so those fathers left a family. And so there were single moms. So now the stability of that family is now ruined because now, now the mom, because the, the ones that are more likely to be incarcerated are the ones who already were affiliated with incarcerated people, right? So now the moms are now gone from those families. So, so then what's going to be expected of the children is to, is to operate as a healthy individual without, be, without being given any of the tools. As a matter of fact, you took all the tools away from them. Uh -huh. So there's no way to pull yourself up by your bootstraps if you don't even have boots, right? So children say... Two, two or three years old, when your mom leaves, you don't understand where she went and you don't understand why she won't come back, right? And then when you go to school, you're, you're always looking for her to come back. So now you're poor performing in school and nobody can deal with your attitude. So you may have started out at grandma's house and then you may end up at auntie's house and then you might just end up in, the, um, in, in foster care because nobody else could handle you because what you were trying to say right? You were bleeding with hurt, right? You were trying to tell somebody and they didn't want to get that all over them. So they passed you on to somebody else. And, and based on the systems, they're supposed to be somebody more qualified. So the social service system, they're supposed to be a social worker who is now more qualified, but that, that ignores the fact that the social worker is a person, right? Mm -hmm. Who has their own issues at home. They have their own ideas of what's supposed to happen. So the expectation of a social worker who came from a healthier situation is that you operate like them. I did it. Why can't you? Right. But you don't have the proper tools. So now you create a generation of children who will become adults who will be twerking outside and they're going to, they're going to sell all the drugs that they can get their hands on because as they say, I got to get it how I live. Right. So and then there becomes um, an honor 
Like I'm paying homage to my parents who are now incarcerated because I'm so hard in these streets. You know, one of the young ladies said to me, you know, my name rings in these streets. Okay. So now you, you want your name to ring because your mama's name is ringing. Right. And also you don't know any other life. One of the young ladies had been selling drugs since she was 14. She was 39 when I met her. Right. And, and she was very good at it. Right. But, but her mother was her co-defendant, but not because her mom was a criminal mastermind, but because her mom benefited from the drugs that she was selling. So her mom was using drugs before she started selling them. She began to sell the drugs because, because that's just what her life was. So now her 69 year old mom has nine years to do in prison and she has 11, right? But that is all that she knew. And she's proud of herself because her name rings in the streets, right? But if someone had helped her mom who was using meth, if somebody had helped her, mm -hmm. if someone had thought that, if someone had identified that she had, that she was sick, then you, someone saw a 14 year old missing school, you don't start selling drugs and go to school every day, right? But you're clearly highly intelligent because you managed this long, right? So if someone had noticed that mom was sick, but they didn't, and then they could have noticed that the child was sick, but they didn't, right? Then you're just going to keep recreating. The, the situation is going to get worse, right? So anything that you do a lot, you're going to get better at it. It's going to become more efficient. So the, the system becomes more efficient at breaking up families and then creating, um, creating a, a, a negative space for black and brown families to, to try to grow. So there's, you have no tools to operate. You are, you're frowned upon. Nobody accepts you. You know, um, I, I have, I'm actually still wearing an ankle monitor because I came home early. So they still want to make sure I don't do, I don't know what, but, um, but so I have an ankle monitor. So if I walk outside and I don't have on pants, then everybody's going to know, right? I'm, it's like a scarlet letter. Everybody's going to know, oh, well, she must have committed a crime. She must be a criminal. She must be bad. We can't talk to her. So then what, what is the rush? Because what, what I was told by the people at the halfway house who are monitoring me is they, they have an expectation that you go to work within 21 days, right? But who's going to hire you? Because they already know that they already have been told that they can't trust you. So mm -hmm. who's going to hire you? And what kind of job is that going to be? And I can say, because I went to federal prison, that if you're on a federal level, there's a certain dollar amount that you're accustomed to, to having just to have your, your lifestyle. So, and I'm just speaking in general. So there's no way you're going to tell somebody where well, you can go to a factory or you can go to food. They offered food line as one option. So the grocery store, you're not going to tell somebody that, and then they're going to go work 40 hours a week. And they're going to make minimum wage, which is about seven, eight dollars, which after taxes is about four dollars. So mm -hmm. make four dollars an hour, be away from your family again, and somebody's going to monitor you. And then they're going to follow up. The, the people who are monitoring you are going to follow up with your employer to make sure that you're doing what you're supposed to do. You cannot quit the job without someone's permission. Right. So you have to prove the case that for some reason it wasn't working out. You cannot pursue your passion because everybody knows that the grocery store is not your passion, right? Um, so now the barrier is, when am I going to get the mental health um, help that I need, right? Because that is that is definitely an issue. 
because and and also i'm not going to perform well at work because now i'm on edge i'm extremely irritable and the smallest thing has you know what your normal communication used to be is not what it is now uh-huh. right so so what is safe to say before you've been incarcerated is no longer safe to say after you've been incarcerated so i've talked to so many people that have said um you know oh you got me messed up right so when you go to work, that's what you're going to say. When your employer says, I need you to work overtime. Oh, you got me messed up. Oh, I'm not doing that. Right? So now you're not even an employable candidate. Right? And you have to work at a place that you would have never been before. And you're probably smarter than those people because there are some highly intelligent people who are incarcerated because they run criminal organizations. Right? So they are highly intelligent. So you have to listen to people who you know aren't as smart as you. And you have to humble yourself and not because you like the job, but because you like your freedom. And so there's a whole system that has been created and there's a disconnect between telling the president of a company, we need you to be more aware of what's going on and the hiring manager, because the hiring manager doesn't even know who the president of the company is, right? So the hiring manager, he just got up and came to work just like you did. He working 40 hours. He thinks he's underpaid just like you do, right? So he has no sympathy. So when you go in with the ankle monitor on, he has no, there's no incentive for him to be a more compassionate human being, except if somebody at the top has given him not only orders and ideas, but a compensation to allow them to be more compassionate, right? So I'm not going to be compassionate at $40,000 a year because I still got to work another job. So if I got to work hard, you got to work hard. So there's the lack of compassion. So just small things. So everybody, right. Everybody needs to make livable wages. And then, then you can sit back and relax, right. And say, okay, now how do I talk to Claudia as a person and not as, somebody who need to get back on the right track because I already know what she did, right? Oh, Oh, I'm sorry. So tell me a little bit about like, you know, from, you know, your re-entry. What has that been like for you psychologically? What what has that been like emotionally? What has that been? What has the job search been like? I mean, what kind of um, fears or challenges internal um, that you've experienced since you've been home? So... My re-entry, first of all, it was sudden. I had no idea that I was going to come home earlier. So I was prepared. I had prepared myself for February 2021. So all of a sudden, somebody walks out and says, you can go. But it seemed like just as suddenly somebody said, you're going to prison. So, So now I have anxiety about what's next, right? Mm. If you open the door when somebody knocks, is it somebody who's coming to arrest you, right? what what so you start planning your mind what did i do wrong so ups is knocking at the door because you can't go anywhere because you have on a monitor so you ordered something but when ups comes to the door you don't want to open the door because you don't know who it is right so there's a lot of anxiety i've talked to someone else who has who came home in march and she said her first trip to the grocery store she broke down crying right because she was so afraid that she was doing something wrong she just knew she was going to end up back in prison so you're always thinking I might go back to prison. And so then along with that, then you stay up 
all all night, right? Because you got to see what's going on. You need to make sure nobody gets you in the middle of the night, right? Which means you don't sleep well at night. And when you do fall asleep, then you have anxiety, even in your sleep. You have nightmares about what if I go back to prison? What if this wasn't all real? What if they made a mistake? Mm-hmm. And literally, there was a woman who left who was doing a 20-year sentence and they came back to get her because they said, oh, we forgot. We didn't realize you don't qualify to be home. So you hear the story so you know it's real, right? So to somebody else, it's a fear, but to you, it's a real thing. So you can't sleep and you really don't eat that much, right? Because, I mean, you're just thinking about not going back to prison. Um, and then and then even the job search, well, what happens is when you go interview for a job, if they offer you the job, then the people who are monitoring you call the job to say, well, you know, she's a felon, right? Hmm. So even if you already kind of got that out of the way, now the follow-up call gives them kind of a pause, you know? And, and what if I didn't want them to know in the first conversation that I had been incarcerated before, you know? What if I just want to wait a little bit? So now you've been labeled at work and now you can't sleep. You're really not eating well. So even just the mental health aspect of it, you know, and I was only gone for 10 months, right? So your minimum, right? That's what I'm thinking about. Like imagine, so, you know, when you go back to you all's, like when we think about just the irony in what is supposed to be um, a transitional support, you know, ends up being another perpetual barrier. Um, Right? Like, and I even think about, you know, I'm sitting here just processing and thinking about for someone who is, um, from your perspective, you know, as you shared, um, minimum risk and, you know, all of these things, the barriers still, still persist. I've been thinking about um, just this notion of restorative justice, because I think it can seem like really aloof to people who are not intimately familiar with this work or even these experiences. And so as I'm hearing you reflect, Claudia, I'm like, you know, for the folks we support and who are listening, restorative justice is essentially intended to be very proactive, right? Um, Very proactive, anticipating and knowing that we exist in a structure that is obviously like inherently racist and capitalist and that just, it just is that way. And so actively building supports to address those, um, to disrupt those and dismantle those. That's what restorative justice is about proactively. And so I even think about, you didn't call it, I don't think you, you talked about trauma or named it trauma, but that's one of the things that I have, that has been like, when you talked about um, how this, even just kind of going back to the generational impact, I'm reading this book on how trauma shows up in, in culture, um, how trauma has shown up and um, uh, we haven't necessarily done the work to heal it. And there's this author, Resma Minicum, he says, trauma decontextualized. And so trauma without, you know, or um, uh, uh, trauma decontextualized ends up looking like um, sort of like cultural norms or patterns, right? Mm-hmm. Trauma decontextualized ends up looking like personality flaws, people associating with personality flaws, like trauma decontextualized ends up looking like that sort of those, that dehumanization that happens when people can say, you know what, I'm not going 
help or support because they are that way or that group is that way. Right. And so when I think about restorative justice and the role of people in power, organizations, systems, like address proactively even addressing that um, is a huge part of the work. Certainly cultural confidence, racism, all of these things. But I, I'm thinking, I, I keep going back to your quote about humanizing and dehumanization, right? A lot of that happens because we're not even thinking about the impact the impact that all of these systems and incremental shifts, you named it, the hiring manager who feels as though they can't even extend um, compassion, uh, right, ends up being part of that sort of like perpetual, which is why our work is so important. Um, that keeps coming up for me, just like trauma. And when we talk about the intersection of equity, justice, inclusion, I don't know that we can get to sort of solutions without identifying ways in which people in power organizations start to proactively address that in the ways that they perpetuated even in, you know, as industries and in their systems. Um, yeah, that is, that's something that came up for me. Um, I wanna transition into just kind of like, you know, what's on the horizon. Um, I think there's an enormous opportunity and a call to action as it relates to this conversation and um, how people who are listening can act, can engage, can support. Um, and so I, I think maybe a good, a good start point is share more about, you know, what's next for you, um, aspirations for self and then certainly for the community, right? I think about how you kicked off, which I am from. <laughs> Talk to us about where you're going um, and all of that. So so, um, so since I'm never going to work at the grocery store because it's just not going to work for me, right? And that's real. And that's okay. <laughs> like, let's just, you know what I mean? Because let's just talk like, because there's a narrative. Like, there, there's a narrative that was suggested. And I see it on memes and social media all the time that based on, you know, people need to take what they can get because of what... And that, that, that gets back to that dehumanization, right? And so I just want to affirm, even for anyone who finds themselves leaning into that thinking as they listen and hear this conversation, she need to take what she's going to get. I, I, I reject that, right? right? I reject that. And so, so since that's not my path, right? Since that is not definitely not my path, I have been researching and now I'm working on becoming what they call a peer support specialist as just a starting point, which is you work one-on-one -on -one with people who've been through what you've been through and help them along the process to help them become more successful, right? And of course, that's to help them, but it also helps you, right? And it keeps you grounded and it keeps you humble. And then along to build on that, so I wrote in my gratitude journal on September the 5th, 2019, right? Because I had to find some gratitude. I'm going to Oh, sell coffee because I'm going to show people how coffee can change lives, right? So what the idea is and what the goal is and what we're working on right now is a reentry program, but it's a coffee roastery, right? It's called the Freedmen's Bureau, right? Um, to pay homage to the original Freedmen's Bureau to help people who were formerly in bondage, right? To transition back into society. So teach people skills like 
roasting coffee, which is a very valuable skill, right? And it, it also gives you some independence and you don't have to work traditionally, right? And then also offer a barista training program because while you have the coffee shop and the roastery, you can train people to be baristas and then you can partner with major uh, coffee chains and, and offer them, you know, if you, are, if you hire my people, then we get a little kickback, but also they get a job and they don't have to, nobody has to make the call to say, you know, they are failing, right? Because it's mm -hmm. all understood because you coming from here. This is where you coming from, right? But the coffee beans, the coffee was originally discovered in African countries, right? In Ethiopia, right? So for so many years, people in African countries used it, but did not know that they could use it to build wealth. And then it was stolen from them when they were brought and and then they were brought here to America and taken to other countries outside of America to cultivate the, the coffee because other people didn't know how to grow it. So now we might as well take back what we were growing, what we were growing anyway, right? And use it to build our communities back up. So the Freedmen's Bureau is to do that. So we're working on that right now. We all we already have some some coffee that we're currently, you know, selling right now, mostly on the internet or at little pop-up coffee shops or having coffee parties. So the brand of the coffee is Queen Coffee Bean, because real queens use queen beans, right? So <laughs> so um <laughs> so we have um, a chocolate cherry that everybody loves, right? But also in a rich brown culture, there's no way that you do anything without a little soul in it. So we, we have the coffee in a coffee shop and it is your third place as, as other places consider themselves to be. If you're not at home, you're not at work, you're you going to be here, right? But with some soul in it. So I went to the Freedmen's Bureau today. I had my cup of coffee and I talked to the 17-year-old aspiring hip-hop artist, right? So a 65-year-old grandma with the 17-year-old young man, that's a, that's, a, that's a community that's being built there, right? And it's a built-in mentorship already right so you just teach people who already had the skill on how i'm gonna buy a little bit and i'm gonna sell it for more right they already know that skill they already they already understand that so how can we apply that and then the only limitation is what you put on yourself right so how many you can roast a pound of coffee beans in 15 minutes right so every 15 minutes you got another pound another pound of coffee beans is another $20 that you just made, right? So you just get people to thinking about it. And then a coffee shop, a coffee roastery, the whole family can work there, right? Mom and dad can work there. 16-year-olds can work there. And then you have a few, you know, a book area so somebody can chill out and relax. So I just want to bring the soul, you know, coffee shops into urban communities because we don't have those. Just a third place, right? For us to take back something that was taken from us build our own economy, right? Build a coffee economy and then rebuild the communities, so. I love it. And if anybody from um, Starbucks or any other major uh, a chain um, is listening or any organization for that matter who has since put out a statement um, articulating their commitment to racial justice this racial equity and building communities, here we have in real time a very direct way to activate, right? Activate that, um, you know, allyship, activate that espoused advocacy. Three key words um, that came up for me as you were sharing 
community, um, humanity, and justice, right? Community, humanity, and justice. I think that's worth naming because um, in the context of what is a very individualistic culture, you mentioned pull your bootstraps up, you know, that whole like hierarchy, get up the food chain kind of thing, um, where that is the norm, community, humanity, and justice um, at its, in, its, in its simplest form are acts of resistance, right? Right. And that is the work. Community right. building, humanity, and recognizing it in each of us um, and justice, right? That the work, that that's the work. Where can people find you? I see that look sticker in so, the back, but perhaps if you go to claudiashivers.com, right? And click on the share with Claudia uh, button, and then that sends me uh, messages directly. And of course, I'm on social media, but the claudiashivers.com is the most efficient way, you know, to get in contact with me. And there's a beautiful, beautiful blog on there. I am curious as we're winding down our time together, Claudia, what. Um, about yourself did you discover that most surprised you while you were <laughs> you know and and I don't know how to make this sound graceful or <laughs> anything you know I discovered that I I do like Megan the Stallion and not because I want to listen to Megan the Stallion all the time but because there is a freedom and a liberty into saying this is who I am, oh, and I don't wow. care what anybody else thinks, right? So, so it's not that per se, I, you know, I'm her biggest fan, but it's the message that I got from so many women who had been in the criminal justice system for a long time. They were, you know, I would say, oh, well, I think, I think she uses crack. And then somebody would say, so, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, okay, right, so, right? Because there's, there's power in so, right? so so what so what she uses crack so now what so so what she doesn't deserve a chance she's not a person right so I learned I learned that it is okay to love someone that I did not agree with right and to love them wholly not just as long as they're only doing the right thing because nobody only does the right Mm -hmm. thing right one of the ladies there used to always say i call this caught camp because it's a lot of people doing crime but we the ones that got caught right so it's a lot of people that you feel like you can love them because it's safe right but that's just because they didn't get caught doing anything right so or not yet anyway so i learned that it's okay it's okay to listen to nina simone and and read Nikki Giovanni, and it's okay to quote all of those wonderful, beautiful women, listen to MC Light, and then also listen to Megan Thee Stallion say, you know, it's a hot girl summer, and I, because before I would have been like, you're not even doing anything with your summer, right? So, <laughs> so that's, that is what Body. I, I love it. <laughs> you can do both. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. Well, both and we're always talking about that. Yes. Right? I love it. Um, this has been wonderful. Again, a stop point for what I believe will be um, continued conversations that really get us focused on and understanding the work beyond our organizations, um, beyond uh, the sort of proverbial walls, you know, beyond the boardroom, right? These conversations matter. 
and certainly how we show up in these systems and act within these systems matter uh, more now than ever. Right. Thank you, Claudia. Thank, Thank you so much. You. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah.